all hear the word of God. Matthew chapter six, verses twenty four through thirty four. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, for what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold, the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, of God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil Thereof. Because we do have young people with us, I want to mention one thing. The one hymn we sang just a few minutes ago was, Psalm, was number 69 in the hymn book, Lord, with glowing heart I'd praise Thee. And the person who wrote that hymn was Francis Scott Key who also wrote our national anthem. So maybe you would like to show that to your teacher in school and say, did, <laughs> did you know Francis Scott Key wrote this great hymn? Now, if you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, we'll turn to the most complete sermon of our Lord Jesus Christ that is recorded in Scripture. God often molds a preacher from his youth. And if you listen to the testimonies of those who are called to preach, you will find how God placed impressions on their hearts from very young years. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was 12 years old, had the first opportunity for him of going into the temple and speaking with the teacher theologians who were there. It was not until 12 that a Jewish young boy could go into the synagogue and sit with the men or go into the temple and sit with the men in their religious discussions. 
But Jesus was eager to be there. And he lingered in the temple for some time. We read that he asked questions. They asked him questions. And at the end of this discussion, everyone was amazed at what he knew about God and the scriptures. But it's what his heart desired from that time. And, of course, you remember in that account that our Lord Jesus Christ was missing. His parents didn't know that he was talking theology in the temple. And they were frantic to find him. They rebuked him for not having told them where he was when they found him. And the Lord Jesus said, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? I must. As you read the New Testament, the Gospels, look for Jesus using that word must. There was an inner compulsion with him. I must talk about these things. And I must acquire more information from those who have a knowledge of the word of God. It was an inner devotion to his heavenly father. And one of the marks of his preaching was his devotion to God the father. Then, of course, at age 30, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And as he was baptized, he was praying. I like to point that out to those who are about to be baptized. What do you do when you're being baptized? Jesus was praying when he was baptized. Was he committing himself afresh in a prayer to the Father? Whatever he was doing, he was praying. And you can talk with those about to be baptized. What would be appropriate for us to pray about as we are about to be baptized? But the Holy Spirit descended upon him and anointed him for his gospel ministry. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. Now. That sounds exciting, but the very first thing the Holy Spirit did was lead him into the wilderness to 40 days of temptation facing the devil. And if you are called to preach the gospel, you will face temptations. And you will face temptations that are parallel to those that were faced by our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that when Jesus had been there and for 40 days he had eaten nothing and he had drunk nothing. And then the devil came to the Lord Jesus and suggested, use your new powers and position with God to satisfy your personal desires. You're hungry. Make bread out of this rock and satisfy your desires. With your power. And Jesus said, men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ preached with scripture packed sermons. 
But ministers are tempted to use their power and position for personal desires, for promotion, for food, for money, for sex. The list can go on and on. The devil then showed Jesus the kingdoms of the world from a mountaintop. And the devil said, I can give you authority and glory of nations. I have the power to give those things. Worship me and they will all be yours. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ was aware that the promise was that all nations of the earth would be blessed by him. We, the Gospel of Matthew opens with a statement that Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and it was to Abraham that it was promised that through his seed, and Jesus was his seed, through whom every nation of the earth would be blessed. Wouldn't it be convenient to have the power and the glory before those nations at the very start of his ministry? This was the temptation that was given. And uh, the Lord Jesus Christ said, get behind me, Satan. And then from the pinnacle of the temple, he was tempted to jump, to do something that was sensational. To draw attention to himself. For God had promised that he would not stub a toe. But that the angels of God would protect him from injury. And our Lord Jesus Christ reminded the devil that it is forbidden to tempt the Lord his God. Are not ministers tempted to these same things? And have to... Continue resolved as Jesus Christ to serve the Father, to preach his word faithfully, and not to accrue things to himself. Is it not one of the shames of the church that too many ministers have sought to promote themselves and have sought riches and honor in the pulpit instead of just proclaiming the truth? Jesus refused these things and returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Maintaining the power of the Spirit, having resisted temptation. And the people marveled at his preaching. But Jesus had made himself of no reputation. And had taken upon himself servanthood. In the ministry. And all of that is part of the preparation for preaching and part of the beginning of having been called to the ministry. And do not be surprised if you face, young men, those temptations. When Jesus began to preach the gospel in Israel, the northern kingdom had been subjected to foreign empires for Almost 800 years. And the northern part of Israel had been occupied 
by foreign armies oppressing them for 800 years. And the southern kingdom for 650 years. And as we know in subsequent history, after our Lord Jesus Christ's ministry and the ministry of his disciples in their lifetime, when that time ended, the Jews themselves would be scattered throughout the earth and would not have a government in Israel until 1948. And it does not surprise us that Isaiah, speaking of the coming of the Messiah, said that in darkness a great light shone. And Jesus and his preaching was that light. But he was preaching to people in these historic circumstances that we cannot yet imagine, although sometimes we fear to look into the future. That kind of oppression by hostile people for generation after generation, but in the midst of it, great, great light shone in the person and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were brutal heathen empires. And the people felt the oppression everywhere. Their money had the picture of the emperor upon it, not of their local leaders. And our Lord Jesus sometimes suggested the problems the people we're facing when he said, if someone compels you to go with him a mile, offer to go too. Imagine young men all their lives being under the heel of legionnaires from Rome. That was the situation in which Jesus Christ grew up. When a soldier could say, young man, come here, carry this load for me down the road a mile. The sense of oppression, the sense of humiliation as a people, as an individual. But in Galilee of the Gentiles, there was a great light that was shining in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was the light of the world. And in Matthew 5 to 7, we have this great sermon which he preached. And in the midst of all of this darkness that his people were living in, I want you to see, first of all, in Matthew's gospel, that there were very bright and encouraging things that Jesus Christ preached. And I know that sometimes the minister gets so wrapped up in the text that he's going to be giving that he doesn't think of, have I given something cheerful to the people today? Have I lifted their spirits from the problems that they are facing in life? And the difficulties that are all around us in our day. But how our Lord begins the Sermon on the Mount 
he begins with these great, we call them beatitudes. What we mean is he is giving them blessings. He is giving benedictions to them at the very beginning of the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble in spirit. Who are not puffed up for any reason, but seem to be beaten down and they do not have pride or ambition left within them. Blessed are they. Blessed are those who mourn. Who mourn because of their sin. Who mourn because of oppression. For they shall be comforted. Can you imagine how the people feel as Christ in the power of the Spirit says these things to them? Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Who do not feel that they have the righteousness they long for. They are hungry for it. They thirst for it. Well, they shall be filled, says Jesus. He speaks of these inner conditions of the heart and promises blessing to the people. Blessed are the merciful to others who live around them, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Blessed are those who make peace with other men, they shall be called the sons of God. And listen to this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that isn't even enough of a blessing. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One of the books of the Bible that I love so much is the book of Ruth. Because the people in Bethlehem, long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, were giving benedictions to one another when they would meet, when they would part. And the book is filled with benedictions. And hopefully ministers will learn how to include these cheerful, bright hopes and promises to God's people in the midst of preaching. Well, as he gave those blessings, they were followed by a number of special encouragements in verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. <laughs> the salt of the whole earth downtrodden by the by heathen emperors and their armies generation after generation you are the salt of the earth you give the savor the only good savor there is to the earth but if the salt loses its flavor how shall it be seasoned then it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot you are the light of the world 
A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Yes, this is a dark place to live, but you are the light of this place. Let your light so shine before men. No one puts a lamp that he lights under a basket. One of those, one of the amazing things of Jesus preaching is that it was oriental in style. With a few words, he could say something about a principle that had tentacles in it, that would grip the memory, that would grip the heart. No, and the world remembers, even though they do not remember that it came out of the Sermon on the Mount, the world uses some of these phrases in our language and in every language on the earth. Nobody lights a candle and puts a basket over it. Why did you light the candle if you do such a thing? Let your light so shine before men. What is your light? Uh -huh. That they may see your good works. Good works. People don't like to tell Christians that they should do good works. Let them see your good works. Well, if you do good works, shouldn't you hide them in a corner someplace? Let them see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, encouragement to the people, brightness in the midst of darkness from the preaching which he gives on the, on the mount. Well, in verse 17, Jesus pivots. And that's one of the marks of Jesus' preaching that you see in many places in the New Testament. Uh, we are accustomed to saying there's, there's a proper way to preach a sermon. You have a major theme and you break it into a few points and deliver it that way. Jesus is often preaching along in the brightness and encouragement of a thing like this and suddenly he pivots. And the subject changes. Changes. And interestingly, in verse 7, 17, he begins to talk about himself. Begins to talk about himself. Now, the, the, the point of this, preachers, is not that you should talk about yourself. <laughs> and there are many ministers who think that's exactly where they should get their illustrations from themselves. But uh, Jesus is talking about himself. Who am I? And why am I here? And what is my mission? And we're not really going to go through that this evening. Lord willing, we'll do that tomorrow evening. But his messages are filled with himself. And that teaches us that we should have our messages filled with Christ. He is the light of the world. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. He is the bread of life. On and on it goes. And Christ speaks of himself that way in his preaching. And we must speak of him and give to people the knowledge of Christ in that way. 
So benedictions to the godly. Encouragements to their vital role on earth. And he preaches himself. And then in chapter 6, where we're going to jump at this moment, the Lord Jesus gives very practical instructions. He pivots again. He pivots again. And he gives very practical instruction to the people on how to worship. And the section is filled with contrasts. Great way of preaching to use contrast. This is good, that is evil. This is right, that is wrong. And that is how he goes through teaching worship. He speaks of the wrong way of hypocrites worshiping, the scribes and the Pharisees that they have seen all their life and who were supposed to be an example to them. They were hypocrites. The right way of worship is a heart that is centered on the inner man. As to doing charitable deeds. Don't do your deeds to be seen of men. If you do, why do you look for any further reward? They have their rewards. Isn't that a wonderful way that it sounds through? Men who are doing good works to be seen by men, well, they've gotten their reward. They've been seeking to be seen by men. They've been seen by men. So much for that work. And so he goes on as to prayer. If you are praying to be seen by men, well, you've had your reward. But if you're praying in your heart, in the secret place for God to see, and not with vain repetitions like the heathen, your Father will reward you openly. And isn't it encouraging too that Christ teaches about prayer? Do you think about this, that before you go to prayer, your Father knows what you need before you ask? He knows. And when Jesus gives His remarkable prayer that we ought to imitate more often than we do, so compact, so simple, so right. God knows all of the things that we ask Him. Forgive us our debts. He knows that we need to be forgiven. Give us this day our daily bread, thinking again in the context in which the people prayed when they had so little when their nation had been ruined for generations and there was no bright spot ahead in the economy or for freedom or for change. Give us this day our daily bread. Your father knows that you need that before you even ask him. Again, a wonderful phrase to always be remembered in prayer. The father knows. Forgiving offenses of others. 
he speaks. For fasting. And again, do you do it to the, what is the motive? Do you try to be seen of men? Is that why you are not eating or drinking today? To make a point to men that you are somehow self-sacrificing? Well, that's all you're going to get from it if that's what you're after. But if it is to be seen by God and to plead with him and to call upon his name, there will be rewards indeed given to you. His view of wealth in Matthew 6 and verses 19 and following. Now imagine a people who have been trampled underfoot for so long. Wealth is a matter of great importance. But he says in verse 19 of chapter 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Uh, well, I don't know if they really are thinking about that wealth in that way and their condition. Americans think of it that way. Laboring to save enough to have as much money as you need until you're a hundred years old. We lay up treasure in heaven and think that that's the necessity. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy And thieves break in and steal. And the government can't wait to get its hands on it either. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thieves break in and steal. The illustrations that Christ uses. So practical. For where, oh here's the one, isn't it? Where your heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Searching. A searching phrase. Where is your real treasure? Do you keep checking your bank accounts? And where your retirement account is headed? But do you seek what is laid up in heaven for you? Do you pay attention to those accounts? Our Lord Jesus Christ then makes this statement that, again, it's, it's used throughout literature, even novels. No one can serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The demon of greed. You cannot. You cannot. Serve God. And serve the demon of greed. Can't be done. Says our Lord Jesus Christ. Principle to remember for life. And then. One of the most beautiful sections. Again, he pivots. And he starts talking about worrying. The people were worried. Of course they were worried. I ask the ministers here, are your people worried? Are Americans worried right now? Are they worried about 
all of the marching here and there by forces of violence while our government shrinks its military? Are they worried? When the economy will not recover and all the leaders of the nation can do is say, we want more of your money, are they worried? Our people are worried. Our nation is worried. And our Lord Jesus Christ speaks to that matter directly of of worrying. Do you think your people may need a sermon on worrying? Verse 25 of chapter 6, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then look at the birds, the birds of the air. Illustrations from nature. And of course they were outside and they could probably see some birds at that very moment. They don't sow seed in the ground, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than the birds? Which of you, by worrying, can add a cubit to his stature? Add an inch to how tall he is by worrying? Again, a phrase that is used in secular literature. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They don't toil. They don't spin. And yet... Say to you, says Jesus, that even Solomon in all his glory, isn't that a great phrase? The richest man ever to live. Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Like one of these flowers in the garden. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today isn't and tomorrow is thrown into the oven Will he not much more, much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry. Saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? You've been conquered by the Gentiles. That's what they're seeking. That's what they worry about. But your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He's not saying you don't need them. You do need clothing and food. And He knows that you need clothing and food. But what does He do when He knows that the flowers need clothing? And what does He do when He knows that the birds need feeding? He takes care of them all. And so it's your task to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. 
Tomorrow will worry about its own things. And then another famous phrase, sufficient for the day, is its own trouble or evil. Remarkable sayings from our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in the oriental style of knitting together phrases. I don't think, I'm not suggesting we can preach as Jesus did. Or that we have a mind to think up phrases that will forever stick in the memory and the hearts of the people that we preach to. But it is the heart to which he reaches and the message that he brings that is so powerful and so effective. Now, in chapter 7, our Lord Jesus Christ starts bringing in more dark parts to the message. And there have to be dark parts to preaching as well as bright parts to preaching. And he's going to conclude his message with warnings. And he is going to talk about who it is that will enter the kingdom of God. In verse 21 of chapter 7, it will not be everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. They will not enter the kingdom of God necessarily. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And that will is expressed in his law and in his commandments. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and did many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's not in having done outward deeds while also combining it with lawlessness of life. And there it is, it's the law, lawlessness, not following the law. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, does them, puts them to practice, lives that way, then I will liken to the wise man who built his house on a rock. And then we have this concluding part of the Sermon on the Mount where he shows two people building a house. And the one builds his house upon a rock. And then the picturesque language of a storm. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall. It was founded on a rock. But he who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them. To hear them is not enough. 
to do them is the necessity. It will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the same storm came. The rain descended. The floods came. The winds blew and beat on the house. And it fell. And great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority on all these subjects. Not like the scribes who taught them. He taught with authority. We need to pray that when we preach in a scriptural manner and according to the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God will give us authority in doing so. When will the judgment come with which he ends this message? What is your religious building like right now? Are you doing the commands? That's very moralistic, isn't it? Oh, so moralistic. Shouldn't he have finished by saying, well, don't you have faith? No, he finishes with, Are you doing the commands? But there's so much pleasant material for the faithful. There's joy. There's hope. There's reassurance. There's peace. For the mind that has been scrubbed clean of all worrying. And the fear and the warning for those who do not do the commandments of Christ. are appropriate for them while there is yet time to start building a new house on a solid rock. Good works are the evidence of religion. They are not the basis of hope, but they are the evidence of true religion. And the consequences of hope does not make ashamed are all packed into this one sermon. Isn't it amazing? And it, you've never heard one preach like this. You, you've seen it. You've read it. And you should admire our Lord Jesus Christ. And for ministers who are trying to be more like him. To be picturesque in language. To use illustration freely. From nature, to be sure. From the world that everyone has. Everyone's looking for food. Everyone's looking for clothing. Everyone's looking for sufficient money to support their family. Everyone's worried. These are the themes of which people need to hear. And it's no wonder, is it, that they heard him gladly. For they were an oppressed people. Will America be an oppressed people in the future? Will the whole of the West be oppressed as the Jews were? Is not God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Why was God so angry with the Jews to treat them with these generations of oppression? And 
chasing them out of the land that he had given them. The prophets tell us plainly, their land was filled with blood. And when Zephaniah and Jeremiah describe what is meant by that, it was the killing of babies. And your land is filled with blood. And your land is filled with sexual immorality. And now our government is putting the pressure on for the whole society to accept homosexuality as nothing but a personal choice. As the murder of babies is nothing but a personal choice. Is this what Americans mean by freedom? Do Americans deserve to call upon God and find more mercy than Israel found when they were in those conditions? They were led there by the worship of idols, insulting to God. But is it not true that America has its idols? Put in the place of God and leading us to the direct same immoralities that destroyed Israel for so long. When one thinks of that, one thinks, why was the Messiah sent to a people who were like that? And why was his gospel preached to us? And what will he do with us in the future? There ought to be more concern about good works. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And even think of the Father who is in heaven to glorify him. How do we apply this to America? How do we say this to our people? Surely with some of the tenderness that Jesus used. And with some of the vividness that Jesus used. And with the history that is before. This, this is not a story. This is history. Oh, I know the scholars do not think it's history. They do think it's myth. But it's reality. And we must preach it. Believing the reality and warn that there are two different houses being built and the storm is going to break. And only if the house is built in the proper way will the house stand. Whether it's the house of an individual family or the house of a nation. May God grant us to preach as our Savior did. Amen.